And Lord, you are a God of praise. And you say that you inhabit the praises of your people. We thank you for the worship thus far in this service. We thank you for the praise and the adoration, the exaltation, the magnification of your great love and mercy expressed toward us through the birth of your son Jesus and his life, his burial, resurrection, and ascension. We now come, O Lord, to your word. We know, O God, that there is life in your word. There is illumination in your word. There is strength and encouragement in your word. There's inspiration. And God, we just pray in Jesus' name as we open this book that you would touch our hearts and give our uh, spiritual heart and mind to your will and your purpose at this specific time in this service. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, in 2 Samuel, the Bible talks to us about an incident in David's life. All of you know who David is? King of Israel. He's called the warrior king because he's a battle-oriented person. He's a fighter. You give him a problem and praise God, he'll work his way through it. You give him an obstacle and he'll defeat it. Give him an enemy and he'll defeat it. He was just such a, a warlike person. And strangely enough, when time came to build the temple, God said, you got too much blood on you. You've just been such a warrior and such a fighter and such a battler that I need a peaceful person uh, uh, to build my house. So God allowed him to prepare for it, and boy, prepare for it, he did. He was a king like no other. In fact, he bore the title, the man after God's own heart. Man after God's own heart. We're first introduced to him when he's a, a lad of a boy. He is in the fields and he's working and his brothers are in a, a battle and they're fighting alongside every other person in Israel and uh, he decides that he's going to go down and take some food and he's going to visit with his brothers and when he gets there he finds a very difficult situation. There's a giant whose name is Goliath He's a champion of the enemy, a champion of the adversary, and he's walked out of the valley of Elah, and he has challenged anyone in Israel. We don't have to have all this bloodshed. You and I can fight this out. Me and you, give me your best guy. I'll fight your best guy. Well, the Bible said that Saul was head and shoulders above every other man in Israel. What a physical specimen he was, but he wasn't uh, hardly fit enough to face a nine-foot giant. You see, Goliath was from the place called Gath, and there were giants in that land. In fact, the Bible tells us in another uh, instance, another reference, that he had five brothers. Wow. Had uh, a group of them. And this particular Goliath stepped out as a champion of, of Philistia, and he challenged all of Israel, and none would fight him. They had not a person. And this young, skinny, scrawny Jewish boy said, I'll go fight him. And they laughed. Well, that, that really didn't damper much of David's uh, temperament because he, he was kind of a, a scrappy fighter anyway. He was kind of like that little engine that says, I believe I can, I believe I can, I believe I can. And you know, when you've got a person with a positive attitude and a person uh, kind of believes he can do it no matter how big it is or how broad it is or how deep it is, 
He just feels like I can do it. And he said, I'll go out there and I'll fight that giant. And the Bible tells us that he, Saul wanted to put some armor on him. He said, well, if you're going to go out there and fight and represent us, we need to put, dress you like a warrior. You don't look like a warrior. We need to make you look like one anyway. And it wasn't long before he decided this is not good for me. He said, I'm not comfortable wearing armor, a breastplate, and a helmet, and, and all of the things that go along with the dress. I just don't need that. He said, keep all of that. I, I'll not need it. And with a slingshot, he walks out into the valley of Elah and faces a giant and declares to him, I will kill you today, and I will cut your head off, and I'll destroy you. Wow. Kind of a braggadocious kind of guy, huh? Very much self-confident at, at best. And he walks out, and uh, the giant says, Who am I? A, a dog that you'd send an insulting runt like this out here to fight me? I'm insulted that you would send a child out here to fight me. And David said, I'm going to kill you. It may not look like it. The numbers are in your favor. The circumstances don't show it, but I'm going to win this thing. I'm going to win this thing. And you know, a positive attitude goes a long way. And the Bible said with that, he began to wind up with his, his sling, and he turned that stone loose, and it went straight to the forehead of Goliath, and he fell dead. And the little boy walks over, and he takes the sword out of Goliath's sheath, which was quite a task to do. It was pretty heavy. And the Bible said he cut his head off. And here comes a little boy with a big head marching back into the camp. Now that big head at that time was his enemy. But as time would go on, that big head became his because God was with him in such a mighty way that he was victorious in battle. You give him a Goliath to fight, he'd kill him. You give him a battle to win, he'd win it. You put the Philistines over there, he'd whip them and smash them and pulverize them. You give him anything to do, he would do it. And he got to the point that the people thought he was just so invincible that he could do anything. And that big head began to sit on his shoulders until he felt himself above responsibility to God. You see, that's, that's what leadership does to a lot of people. That's what fame and fortune and uh, money does to a lot of people that cause themselves to believe that they're exempt or they're above responsibility. But I want to tell you, you're never, never out of the realm of accountability to the one who called you. The one who anointed you will always be the one that will call you into question to give an account. Well, in the Old Testament, when we look at the Old Testament, we have to look through the lens of the law because it's more about crime and punishment than it is about grace and forgiveness. That, that took Jesus to get for us. But in the Old Testament, God says, don't do this, and you don't do it, or else you pay a severe penalty. In the Garden of Eden, God said, don't eat of the tree. But when they ate of the tree, God said, judgment. That's just the way it is in the Old Testament. Now, there are some times when, when you could pray, and God might would 
change. Because when Hezekiah got his word from the Lord that, that you're going to die and you're not going to live. And the Bible said he turned his face toward the wall and he began to pray. And when he prayed, God turned Isaiah around and said, go tell him I've seen his tears and I've heard his prayer and I'm going to add 15 years on to his life. So by prayer, people felt like maybe sometime I could change God and could escape judgment and escape penalty and that kind of thing. Well, David was in this big battle with his big head and was fighting the enemy, but instead of being out there on the front lines where it was supposed to be, he was back at the palace enjoying the home life while soldiers were sleeping on the ground and fighting the battle. You see, when you think you're above those that you're supposed to lead, and with you think you're better than them, and that nothing is required of you, it's required of them, and that happens sometimes in big-headed people. And the Bible said he was walking on his palace, and he saw uh, over in a, another area, he saw a woman bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. And Bathsheba was a very beautiful woman. But inside David, there was something in him that was more his enemy than the people who were in the field. You see, sometimes the enemy is enemy. Sometimes the enemy that you fight within is greater than the enemy that you're fighting on the outside. Sometimes the terror is really not their fearsome ways, but on the inside, there's something going on inside you that causes terror and fear. And David, when he lusted after the woman and sent for her as a powerful, authoritative, tyrannical king, I'll have my way. And he took another man's wife and he adulterously stole that man's wife. Well, she sends him word, I'm going to have a baby. I'm going to have a baby. Well, there was no abortion clinic, and there was no save-a-life. So suddenly, David realized, hey, I've, I've got to do something. I've got to fix this situation. You see, sometimes when that big head gets to a point that you gets you to a desperation, then you start looking for your own means of working this out. And when you trust the arm of the flesh, you oftentimes are disappointed with the terrible consequences. And the Bible said, I've got to go and kill her husband, and then I'll take her for my wife. And you thought this stuff was only on Peyton Place. Well, suddenly when he sends to the, to the front lines, Gary, and he, his general is a man named Joab, and he sends a letter to Joab. He said, take Uriah the Hittite and put him in the heat of the battle where valiant men die. And when the enemy approaches, withdraw from him and leave him to fight alone. And when he is dead, send me word. Uriah the Hittite was killed in a, a battle fighting for God's people. 
when word came back to David, it's all fixed now. There's no problem. There's no more worry. We've got your sin covered. We've got your sin fixed. But I've always told you, sin will always cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will always take you further than you thought you'd ever go. And the Bible says that when David got word that Uriah was dead, then he took Bathsheba, moved her into the palace as one of his wives, and thought that everything is fixed and everything is done. But I want to tell you, God does not let sin go. He's not a God that sweeps it under the rug. He's not a, a God that deposits it somewhere where you won't find it. And the Bible said he had a prophet whose name was Nathan. And Nathan appeared in the court of the king one day. And he said this parable to David. He says to him, he says, hey, there is a man in your kingdom. And he has only one little lamb. And he loves that lamb and he cherishes that lamb. And that lamb is precious to him. It eats out of the same cup that he does. And he cherishes and loves that lamb. And a stranger came through the country and he stopped at the house of a wealthy person who had many, many flocks and many, many herds. And he went over to this one little man that had one little lamb and he stripped the lamb from his arms and took it and killed it for the stranger to eat. David leaped up from his throne, looked out, and he said, the man that did this must surely die. And Nathan, with that little scrawny finger of a prophet, said, thou art the man. Whoa. And then Nathan said, the child will be born, but the child will not live. And turned and exited. Process of time, the child grew worse and worse. And David realized the day of responsibility and accountability has come. David, that great king, that great sweet singer of Israel, that friend of God, that one that wrote those lyrics of praise and worship, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, all that is with me, bless his holy name. All of those lyrics to the song the sweet singer had penned about loving God and loving his creation and how beautiful are the feet of them that care the gospel. How, how beautiful is the Lord, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth. But there's no song to sing now. There's no beauty to behold. And the Bible said he went out and lay on the ground in misery, the 16th verse said, David therefore besought God for the child. What? David fasted and David went in and he lay all night upon the earth and the elders of his house arose and went to him 
to raise him up from the earth, but he would not. Neither did he eat bread with them. Wow. David prayed for a baby? Why do you think David prayed for the baby? He knew about Hezekiah. He knew about restoration. He knew about healing. He knew that God was a God of loving kindness. He knew that God was a God who healed brokenness. And he said, oh God, I'm praying for this baby. God, I know that you've said that the child will not live, but God, I'm here to pray today. Please, God, don't take that baby. Please, God, that's my child. I love that child. I want that child. Please, God, please don't take the baby. You know, we read a lot about people praying for babies in the Bible, but they're all women. Hannah prayed for a baby. And Hannah said, God, if you'll just give me that baby, if you'll give me a man-child, I promise you, God, when time comes to wean him, I'll bring him to the temple and I'll give him to you. And all the days of his life, he'll be lent to the Lord if you'll just give me a baby. Rachel prayed for a baby. And God gave her Jacob. Mary prayed for a baby because the Holy Spirit said there is something conceived in you that is of God and he'll be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, a prince of peace. He'll be a savior. He's the Mashiach. She prayed for a baby. But we don't find anybody praying for babies that are males. Suddenly we come upon the great king of Israel the great warrior king, the king whose hand and might and voice are of such influence, and he's praying for a baby. He's saying, God, please don't kill the baby. Don't take the baby. You know, sometimes we try our best to keep alive something God has said needs to die. Sometimes in all of our life, God said, I'm not going to let that part of your life live. Sometimes God says and speaks to us and says there's about to be some subtractions. We love the addition, don't we? More money, more friends, Better pay, better health. But when God starts subtracting, sometimes we say, no, God, please, don't kill that baby. Lord, I love that part of my life. Lord, I love that that time. I love, please, God, don't kill that I need to hang on to that. And the opposite sometimes happens. Sometimes God wants something to stay in our life and we want him to take it out. You know, there was a time when 
Paul prayed for God to take something out. He said, I saw a vision and I, I saw heaven. I, I was caught up in the spirit to the third heaven. And I saw things that it's not lawful for me to write about. And, and boy, that, that put me on a, a plane up here that there's very few people, no other. And he said, lest I be exalted and get that big head. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh. And I prayed three times, God, kill the baby. God, take this thorn out of my life. I don't like this thorn. It hurts. It's painful. And he said, every time God said, no, I'm not going to take it out, but my grace is sufficient for you. Now, before you get kind of judgmental about him, realize something else. There was a Savior that we call Jesus. And Jesus knew what the price of redemption was. Jesus knew about the pain and the suffering and the shedding of his blood and the beating of his back and the crown of thorns and the piercing of his side. He knew about all of that. And he prayed in the garden until his Sweat became his great drops of blood. And he said, oh God, if it be thy will, take this away. If it be thy will, God, take this. Don't leave it in my life. Take it out of my life. But he said, but nevertheless, thy will be done. I'd like for you to take it away. The human part of me says it's too much suffering, it's too much pain. But the Savior side of me says, thy will be done. Sometimes we want to keep things and hold on to things that God really never intended for us to hold on to. You remember when Abraham went down into Egypt the Bible said there was a famine on in, in Canaan and he went down into Egypt and suddenly the family became a nation while it was in Egypt, four million of them. And now dealing with them is a totally different matter. So when he left and went down into Egypt, the Bible said when he left and came up out of Egypt, he brought a hand, handmaid named Hagar. God never intended for him to take anything out of Egypt. God never intended for him to let something latch on to him because in times to come, there would be a, a, a baby. I said there'd be a baby. And that baby would be named Ishmael. And Ishmael was a substitute for the real promise of God. Ishmael was the result of Sarah's meandering and maneuvering and manipulating. She got tired of waiting on God and decided, I need to help God make this work. I accepted his will, but I don't like his way. So I'm going to have my handmaid, Hagar, go in to Abraham, and I'm going to have her to be a surrogate mother, and she's going to bear this child of promise for me. Come on, somebody. 
And the Bible said, Abram consented. Now we fussed about Adam consenting. We need to fuss about Abraham consenting. We could, we could at least expect him to say, well, I'll pray about it. But he didn't pray about it. Come on, somebody. He didn't pray. He just said, oh, well, send her on in. Lucky me. Very few times a wife would pick you out somebody to bear a child. Huh. No, I'm not going to pray about it. I don't, I, God might give me the wrong answer. So I don't believe I'll pray about that. Isn't it crazy how we select what we'll pray about? Yeah, he didn't pray about that. And so when the baby was born, well, uh, Sarah began to have different feelings. She changed her mind. Yeah, the Lord promised me, and the Lord said this and that and the other, but he, he took too long. I'm 90 years old. I'm not going to have a baby. That's foolishness. Reality is, I'm not going to have a baby, so I better make this happen myself so we can make them scriptures come true. Well, Ishmael was born, and he was almost a teenager when here came some messengers one day and said to Abram's tent and said, about this time next year, Sarah will give birth to a child. And she went, <laughs> and the angel said, that'd be a good thing to name the child Isaac. It means laughter. Wouldn't it be something to have a child that reminded you of you laughing at God? Come here, Isaac. Well, we had a birthday party for Isaac. And at the birthday party, his stepbrother, Ishmael, was standing off over in the corner saying, don't you look at that red-headed little runt. Isn't he a mess? They all think he's something special. They think he's something. He ain't nothing. He's, he's just a little baby. He won't ever amount to nothing. I'm the firstborn. I'm, I'll be the one who'll get the, this blessing. He's not going to get it. They all think that, but that's not the way that's going to go. And Sarah heard it. God bless the little women that listen. <clears throat> she heard it. And when she heard it, she was furious. And so she went to her husband, Abraham, and said, Abraham! That substitute, that carnal thing that we implemented to substitute for the spiritual thing, that promise that we accepted, I saw making fun of the promise and making fun of the covenant and making fun of God's word and God's blessing and said, I'm not going to let a fun maker and a mocker grow up in the same house with the promise of God. Boy, I just preached a great message right there. I'm not going to let a substitute 
grow up in the house with the promise of God. I've got a promise of God. His name is Isaac, and I'm not going to put up with Ishmael hanging around my house making fun of the promise of God. Hey, Ishmael has got to go. And Abraham said, I think I'll go pray about that. I think I might ought to go pray about that because I love my son. I've, I've had him, he's 12, 13 years old. I've got attached to him. He's my son. You think I'm going to turn my son out? Well, what kind of a man do you think I am? God, oh God, help me. Well, why didn't you pray help me when you was getting in that mess? When the phone call came, I'm on my way over. Why didn't you go pray then? Now that you've got the mess, now that you've got the strife and got the chaos, you're going to pray now? God said, do what your wife says. You're kidding me. No, God said, do what Sarah told you to do and let Ishmael go. See, sometimes we want to hang on to something. God says, no, she's right. It's got to go. Boy, you ought to be in the aisles running aisles right now. Thank God that God cares so much about your promise and your covenant and your relationship with him that he won't let a sarcastic buffoon make fun of the promise of God in your life. God said, get rid of him. Kick him out the door. Get him gone. Get him gone. Now, some of you would read that scripture where the Bible said that God sent him away, said, he's got to go. And so Abram, the Bible said, reluctantly. If you'll read it, it says, God gave them, or rather, Abram gave them provisions for one day and sent them into the wilderness. What? Are you kidding me? One day? One day? The faith was on the part of Abraham. If God tells me to do something, it's got to be right. And if God tells me that he will take care of my son and Hagar, then God will take care of them. I don't have to provide for them any further than what God does. If God says they're in my care and my keeping and I've got plans for them, I will bless them. He got the birthright. He was the firstborn. And I will make of him a great nation. God said, I'm going to keep that part of it because I'm not going to go back on that part of the blessing. Amen. And when they got out into the wilderness, the Bible said she put Ishmael over there under a tree in the shade so the sun wouldn't kill it. And she went off and found her a place somewhere and sat down to feel sorry for herself. So while she's sitting over there feeling sorry for herself, the angel of the Lord, that same one that found her when she ran away before, and he said, go back. I said, he said, go back. And she went back. Praise God. And God said, listen, I'm not going to withhold my hand of blessing from you. He said, I'm going to fulfill my promise to you and to your son. And I'll make Ishmael great. He'll be also a father of many nations. So we have today all of the Arabic nations that are the offspring of Ishmael and Hagar. 
what you see on the night news every day, the killing, the bombing, the terrorists are all a result of Abram taking a little handmaid up out of Egypt. You don't need to attach things to you that don't belong on the life of a Christian. You don't need to let things attach themselves to you that don't belong in your life. They'll cause you that same kind of consternation. And notice this right here. The Bible said, and his elders, they arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth. But he would not, neither did he eat any bread. In other words, all the things that had worked before to help somebody that was down and out didn't work on him. His sorrow was so great. His distress was so intense. His misery was so fierce that the Bible said he could not be lifted. You can shout in the name of Jesus all you want to, but if he's determined, nobody is going to raise me up. Nobody is going to encourage me. Nobody's going to get me up. I, I, I deserve it. I'm here because I sinned. I belong here. And nobody is going to lift me up. They can sing songs. They can preach messages. They can send me tapes. They can tell me how good God is all they want to. I'm not going to be raised. And David, the Bible said, remained on the ground. By this time, what was done in secret has now become public. And all of Israel knows about their king laying on the ground miserable. Listen to that. He would not, and he did not eat bread. And it came to pass on the seventh day. What does seven mean in Scripture? Perfection and completion. When the thing had run its course. In other words, when God's time came on the seventh day that the child died and the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead for they said behold while the child was yet alive we spake to him and he wouldn't hearken to our voice how will then he be vexed with himself if we tell him that the child is dead but when David saw that his servants whispered David perceived he perceived what does that mean? It's like the man in the pig pen, he came to himself. Came to himself. He perceived. In other words, something had to happen that no amount of yelling in the name of Jesus at him, no amount of singing spiritual songs to him, no amount of encouraging him and telling how much you loved him would change him. There was only one thing that would change him. Be not conformed to this world, but be changed, transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. Now, you can buy new clothes and you'll still be who you are. You can buy you a new house to live in and you'll still be who you are. You can buy you a new car to ride in but it won't change who you are. There's only one thing that will change who you are, and that's change your mind. Wow. There's only one thing that'll get you up 
off the ground when nothing else will. There's only one thing that will cause you to get up off the ground and get going again when no preaching will and no singing will and no encouragement when you make up your mind. Enough is enough. I've laid here long enough. I've wallowed in this misery long enough. It's time for me now to get up off of this weary place where I've been. It's time for me to change. And change starts in my mind, and it starts in my heart. Now, me saying the word of God to you is one thing, but it won't change you until you say the word of God in you. It's not about the word of God in me. It's about the word of God in you. Well, hallelujah. It's not about the prayer and fasting in me. It's about the prayer and fasting in you. It's not about the hope that is in me. It's about the hope that is in you. It's not about the faith that's in me. It's about the faith that's in you. And when it's time to get up, then faith and hope and believing God will get you up off your face. And the Bible said, and he got up. Got up. Well, I read over in the, Jeru the Bethlehem Star that the king's been laying out on his face for seven days for a week. Hadn't eaten anything in a week. Well, I read in the Jerusalem Post-Herald that it was all about a woman. A woman, yeah, an adulterous affair and a baby. That's what I heard. But the rumor mill and the talk, but no matter what anybody said, no matter what was in the newspaper, no matter what was in the rumor mill, no matter what was on the phone line, no matter what people were texting, and no matter what was on Facebook, he said, I'm getting up from here. I don't care what they say. I don't care what they think. I'm going to get up from here, and I'm going to get going again. I'm, I refuse to stay down. I refuse. Thank God he was a fighter. I said, thank God he was a fighter. Thank God he wouldn't stay down. And thank God he wouldn't just be permanently a miserable being the rest of his life. He determined, I'm not going to be like that. He perceived that the child was dead. He didn't make any change until he perceived. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Boy, the finality of those words. At the funeral of Don's mother, Don read a passage from Joshua and it says, Moses, my servant, is dead. It's time to face reality. This is what has happened. And that's not going to change. When you get up, first thing you're going to be faced with is reality. Reality. And he looked reality right in the face and he said, is the child dead? They said, yes, that child is dead. What had kept him down for seven days and seven nights, no food, just lying there in, in misery, 
they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth, and he washed, and he anointed himself, and he changed his apparel. What? After he changed his mind, he started changing his appearance. He said, I'm fixing to come out of here, and I'm not going to wear any more of these old sad rags of a mourner. The time for that is over. It's time for me to put on different clothes. It's time for me to get this musty smell of laying in this dirt and eating this dirt for seven days. I'm going to get that out of my system. I'm going to get some oil. I'm going to anoint myself. I'm going to, I'm going to wash and get clean, and I'm going to put some good smelling stuff on, and I'm going to get my robe out again that a king wears, and I'm going to put my robe back on, and I'm going to get going again. I'm going to get going again. Amen. You see, when you change your mind, when you perceive and you see the big picture, you stop looking at your minute circumstance and comparing it to everybody else. When you get to that point that you're ready to throw off those heavy bands, when you're willing to throw off those garments that are stained and tainted and you're willing to get rid of all of those garments of depression and pessimism and negativism and suddenly you put on that robe of righteousness and you put on that garment of praise and you put on that garment of rejoicing and you say praise God this is the day of my deliverance this is the first day of the rest of my life I refuse to live on the ground wallowing like a worm I'm going to get up and live like a king I'm going to do what God purposed and planned for my life I'm going to get on with the plan he arose from the earth washed and anointed himself, changed his apparel, and came to the house of the Lord. What are you doing in God's house? What does that next part of that verse say? And he worshiped. Brother, I'm way behind on my worship, he said. I haven't sang a spiritual song in a week. I've not said a praise the Lord in a week. I've not prayed a prayer. I've not clapped my hands. I've not rejoiced in God. I've not, not lifted my hands up to God and said praise the Lord or bless the Lord in a week. It's time for me to get back to where I worship. It's time for me to get back to my place. I need to be in my place. My place in the house of God is a worshiper. My role is to, is to worship him, to lift up God, to, to exalt him and magnify him. And I'm getting up off of this ground and I'm getting on with it. And he came to his own house and he set before him bread and he did eat. And his servant said unto him, what thing is this you've done? You did fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child is dead, now you eat bread and you rise up and wash yourself and go to church and David said listen what I came to realize while that child was yet alive I fasted and wept for I said who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live but now that he is gone wherefore should I fast can I bring him back again no I shall go to him but he cannot Return to me.
What's he saying, Pastor? He's saying, bless God, I'm on my way to heaven. Bless God, I've got up out of this milky, mucky mire that I've been in. I've got up out of these rags and got rid of all of this detestable clothing I was wearing. I've got out of this offensive smell that I had. I've got out and washed myself and cleaned up. And I'm ready now. I see the big picture. And it's not about here and now. It's not about how much I can put in the bank. It's not about what model car I can drive. It's not about what the size, how many square feet my house is. It's not about any of those things. The one thing I really am setting my affections upon is I can go to where he is. He lost sight of this present world, and he said, oh, there's a heaven to gain. I've got a home that's so much better. I've got something in my favor right now. I've got heaven to gain. I'm going to live the life. I'm going to run the race with patience. I'm going to do whatever I've got to do because I have purposed in my heart, I'm going there. I'm going there. And no matter what people say, no matter what they gossip, no matter what they rumor, no matter what kind of innuendo there is, he said, I don't care. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. He can't come back. To me, I'm going to where he is. I'm on my way to heaven. There's a robe and a crown waiting on me there. There's loved ones that's waiting on me there. There's reward and blessing and Jesus and and all that heaven is, and it's there, and I'm going, and nothing is more important than me going there. He can't come back. I'm going to where he is. Is that your goal this morning? Is that your goal? Some of you coming here with all of your mess. Some of you coming here, you've been on the ground a whole lot longer than David was. You've eat that dirt and wallowed in that misery. It's time today to move on. I said, it's time to move on. Touch your neighbor and say, move on. Move on. Move on. Stop trying to make live something God's trying to kill. Stop hanging on to something God's trying to get out of your life. Stop fussing with God because he won't take something out that he put in your life. Amen. If you won't say amen, I'll amen myself. Start doing those things that make for victory. Stop putting things that are against you in a prominent place. Get them out of that prominent place. I said, get them out of that place that you're faced with it every day and see it and reminded of it all the time. Put it out of the way. Put it out of the way. I tell you what, dude, the Bible said, all my sins God has put behind him. Did you get that? He has thrown them behind him. Why is God throwing all of my difficulty and my wallowing in misery, why is he throwing all that behind him? Because he's looking forward. And you need to look forward too. You need to quit turning around trying to search and dig up those things that God threw behind him. That's good preaching clap for that. Quit trying to say, God, why'd you throw that behind you? I wasn't through with that. 
I kind of enjoyed people coming. We're praying for you now. I know you're having a hard time, and bless your heart, I know it's tough, but, but we, we love you, and we're praying for you. If I didn't have my mess, they wouldn't be feeling like that. If I wasn't down and out and weary looking and barely made it to church today, I wouldn't have any much, oh, bless your heart, you sweet thing. God bless you. We're so glad you're here. You're so sweet. They wouldn't treat me that way if I didn't have my mess. Come on. Now, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, God, don't, don't throw that behind you quite yet. I've not really had enough of that uh, attention yet. Don't throw it behind you yet. God is saying to you today, you forget those things that are behind you. God has said, forgetting those things that are behind. Do what? Did you say press? Press? You mean you got to exert some energy? Yeah, press. 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 You know what? Me and Brian was watching basketball yesterday, and when that team got real intense, they started trying to guard every in, the inbound the ball. They contested everything, every pass, every inbounding of the ball. They was right there standing there. And I'm going to keep you, what was that called? A press. That means you step it up just a little bit and get just a little bit more intense about what you're doing. Hey, if I had a word for harvest this morning, it would be press. Press. I press toward the mark. Now, I used to think that was some standard of excellence in ministry that he was striving with. I'm pressing to attain that, that pastor of the year award, that greatest preacher in America award. Yeah, I'm pressing toward getting that, that standard of excellence. No, that's not what it means. I press toward the mark. You know what the original Greek is? Doc, it means date. In original Greek, mark is date. I press toward the date. Uh, and the high calling. High means upward. Calling, the Greek is invitation. I press toward the day when I will receive an invitation to come upward. What am I living for? I'm living for one thing. I'm pressing toward the mark. I'm pressing toward the day when I'll get an invitation. That invitation will say, it's time for you to come on up here. Praise God. I'm going to change your address. I'm going to move you from down here to up there. When I get that invitation to come upward, until that time comes, I'm going to step it up just a little bit and press Press toward the date when I receive that invitation. Amen. Debbie tells me sometimes, she'll say, stand up straight, you look like an old man. I said, I am an old man. <laughs> reason I look like I'm an old man, I'm an old man. Say, Hold them shoulders up. Hold them shoulders up. Yes, sir. 
Pressing, Charles, I'm pressing. 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 Praise God. Every Sunday, I'm going to be pressing. Praise God. When you walk out here, you need to be pressing. Pressing. If there's any place you ought to be pressing, it's when you come in here. Great Lord, I'm going to press into the presence. I'm going to press my way into the glory. I'm going to press my way into the spirit. I'm going to press my way into the goodness of God. I want the goodness of God. I want the favor of God. I've got to press to get to that place. You know what runners do when they get close to the finish line? They press. Boy, the closer that line gets, Sam, the more they lean. They lean until they're almost falling forward. I wonder if Harvest could get to a place that our walk with God was so intense that we appeared to be leaning forward, to be pressing toward the tape, leaning toward the end of the race. I did a funeral not long ago in Tennessee with some of my loved ones and said, well, brother, well, she didn't say brother. She said, well, Jerry said, all of us are kind of slipping on out, aren't we? Said about all of Granny's children are just about all gone. I said, yep. And that long and winding road someday will lead me to that place. One day that long and winding road is going to turn to gold. And one day that long and winding road is going to carry me to the presence of him who bought me and washed me and cleansed me, put a new heart in me, changed my mind, gave me a different ambition and goal. I thought I had my goal pretty well established, but he gave me another goal. And my goal now is to press, to press, forgetting those things that are behind and pressing forward, pressing forward. Stand with me. Pastor, why is it so important that my mind, because as a man thinketh, as a man thinketh, so is he. You think you're a wimp, you'll be a wimp. Think you're not good enough, you'll never be good enough. Think you can't win, you'll always be defeated. Think you're less than, you'll never be more than. Think you're not worth it, you'll never live a life of worthiness. Because as you think, so are you. So God has got to change your stinking thinking. I said God's got to change your stinking thinking and get you to a place that you can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am made more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. You got to start thinking right. Stop thinking depression and misery and agony on me. Start thinking positive and say, God, I am who you say I am. I can do what you say I can do. I can go where your word says I can go. 
I can be what your word says I can be. And I refuse to live my life in pessimism and negativity. I choose to live by faith and walk by faith. Is that your prayer? Say amen. Amen. God, in Jesus' name, I bring you this congregation this morning. I've preached to them the word of God. And Lord, we talked about a man who arose to such great heights and plummeted to the very bottom. But God, when he had the right perception, when he perceived and faced reality, he said, I can go. Thank God. Jesus went to prepare a place and I can go. I'm on my way. I can go. And I'm pressing toward that time. God, help every one of us in this house determine today that we can do things that we're not just some weak, anemic entity, that we're not just a defeated person left to wallow. God, you've given us more than enough to be victorious in every battle. You've given us more than enough, oh God, to pray prayers that touch heaven. You've given us more than enough, God, than the ability to reach a world for Jesus. Help us, God, to be the church, to be the witness and be the person that you'd have us be. Through Jesus Christ, the Master of the Lord of Living and our Savior. Amen and amen and amen. God bless you and God go with you is our prayer. Have a great week. Amen. A great day of the remainder of this day. Tell somebody, I can make it. I can make it. Yes, I can.